every single holiday I ever went on was a science adventure. I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. This is Blabcoats. My name is Amit Siddiqui. In this week's episode, I got a chance to talk to Dr. Vivian Cumbo, who's a postdoc at Macquarie University. Her story is quite interesting because as a child, she grew up in a family of science educators. Her parents were these educators that were passionate about showing her how cool the world was when it was viewed through the lens of science. Vivian is a marine biologist who has looked at how coral respond to the changing temperatures of the ocean caused by climate change. Now, we also talk about her uh, journey after her PhD, the lessons that she learned and the challenges she has yet to face. I enjoyed this conversation a lot because I learned quite a bit from Vivian and I hope you guys do too. Okay, I'm Vivian Cumbo. Um, I'm currently doing a postdoc um, at University, well, Macquarie University, and uh, I'm working on oysters at the moment, uh, looking at um, their response to temperature and also looking at potential ways um, to restore oyster populations in urbanised environments. Okay, nice. Um, I suppose before we get into your research, because I, I like to leave that towards the end, mm-hmm. what I'm curious about is learning more about you and your journey. Yep. Were you always interested in science? As a young girl, were you predisposed uh, towards it? Uh, most definitely, actually, because my parents are both science teachers, so they're both high school science teachers, which meant that uh, every single holiday I ever went on was a science adventure. We would be going camping or any, anywhere we went, we would be driving along and my dad's got um, a background in geology and physics and my mum's got a background in chemistry and botany. So uh, we'd be driving along and the car would just be pulled over all of a sudden for them to show me some rock formations or some plants. or And so I, I felt like I was always learning something about the, the world we live in, which was a really good experience. Wow. So you had two parents both of them were science educators um so geology and physics and your mum was botany and chemistry yeah so you had a good exposure to sort of all different types of fields of science it wasn't just one specific field yeah pretty much um yeah interestingly not so much biology which is <laughs> which is where i ended up heading but uh yeah i, I got to learn a lot of different process, how a lot of different things worked from a very young age, um, which, which is good. Wow, I, I kind of envy you <laughs> because both my parents were educators, but my dad was a historian and my dad was a, my mum was a high school um, teacher, but they weren't scientists. They, they had a deep fascination with science, uh, actually, but they never had the opportunity to study it. So you're like the. I don't know if if I could imagine Carl Sagan and his wife if they had a kid. That's exactly what they would do. <laughs> sort of upbringing. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, it was it was good. It was it was really good, and it and it meant um, the type of things that we actually did when we were kids. Like uh, one of my brother's birthday parties when we were young. Um, was just everyone coming round and my mum just did a whole bunch of different chemistry experiments where there was explosions or pretty lights or things like that and we can imagine a group of kids just absolutely loving that so it was oh, it was yeah. awesome that sounds awesome yeah so your parents were your biggest inspiration for you to get into science uh yeah definitely um i and i had a lot of their support to do that um uh, and the biggest moment for me to to know that I wanted to do um, marine science was actually on a holiday with them when I was 14. And um, we drove from from Sydney up to Cape Tribulation. Um, it was a six-week trip. And at the Whitsundays, I was, we were sailing around the Whitsundays for a week and I jumped in the water and saw um, corals for the first time. And I was just, it took my breath away how, in, like I've always thought the ocean was beautiful and the marine environment was beautiful but just seeing the um, tropical reef ecosystem it was just incredible and seeing corals I just I just knew that this is what I wanted to do wow yeah at 14 you had that realization yeah and obviously along the way you think you want to do many other things but then yeah when I got to choose my university degree that's what I chose was marine science in high school, um, so one, once you realize, once you saw the beauty that there was in in the coral reef, was that the first time you had seen it? That was the first coral reef I'd ever seen. Yeah, okay. yeah. And it really affected you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, how did that affect you at, at school? Did you decide to change your units, for example, in in year eleven and year twelve, where you can specialize? Did you go towards the the in, what, interestingly, I, I, they, they didn't know, and 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 I didn't actually even do biology in in um, high school. I did chemistry and I did um, physics in year eleven, but I had a lot of units, so I dropped physics in year twelve, much to my dad's dismay. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I I did really start doing the sciences once I went to university. I, I had my chemistry background, which was great for. Um, the first few years of um, uni and then I just did biology and mm. there's lots of maths and stuff I, as well. I saw that you did a bachelor's in microbiology and uh, oh, oh my god I'm forgetting the second and one. And marine biology. And marine biology, yep. sorry. Um, th that's quite a mixture. What made you want to mix them two together? Well, when I started I, I wanted to do initially marine science and I really loved chemistry and I actually went into biochemistry um, but come second year at uni I, I started realizing I didn't really like biochemistry as much um, we, were, we were wrote learning a lot of cycles at the time and I was just like this is really not for me and I was doing um, within my marine science degree um, environmental microbiology and I loved it I just loved the microbiology field and so I decided to drop my biochemistry major and actually do microbiology instead and um, yeah it, I loved it and it actually meant like I did a lot of different microbiology not just environmental micro I did um, work on viruses and, and disease and things as well and it was it was great um, and then when I actually went into honours at uni I I did my honours in marine, um, it was marine fielders on corals, but it was actually through the microbiology department um, because it was more marine microbiology, um, which 
was an excellent opportunity for me because um, the Dr. Chris Marquis was my supervisor and he was actually working on corals and there wasn't many people at my university at the time because it was in Sydney that was working on corals and I got this really amazing project with him and we got to go up to Townsville during coral spawning and uh, collect corals and it was it was an amazing experience and it actually is what put me on that path to then be able to do a PhD in corals as well uh, because of the people that I met up in Townsville. Right, so the, the connections that you established at Townsville set you up to doing a PhD in that field? Yep, pretty much. Um, what made you want to, so in, in, at university you did microbiology and marine biology but or marine science, what made you want to get into research? Um, I guess for me I always... I'm always very inquisitive. I always want to know why about things. And that's probably partly because I, growing up, I was always um, like, t- I would always ask why. And my parents actually usually had a lot of answers for why. I actually have a running joke that whenever I'm traveling now and there's some rock structure somewhere, I just want to 1 800 my parents to find out <laughs> what it is. <laughs> oh, wow. um, and so that definitely led me on the path to research. But, um, I, when I finished my honours, I, I, I admittedly didn't know what I wanted to do and I just packed my bags. I knew I wanted to work on, on the reef um, and I packed my bags and drove up to Townsville with, with nothing lined up, no job or anything and door knocked at James Cook University and I got a research assistant's position for three months um, with Dr Andrew Baird um, and this was over coral spawning. So we got to... This is coral spawning just here actually. We got to... Um, I got the experience of uh, working out on the reef at um, Orpheus Island and out on the Midshelf Reef through Ames, the Australian Institute of Marine Science, during this three-month period, and it was just, it was so much fun, diving every day, collecting coral samples, um, going back into the lab, constructing the experiments, having to build stuff, um, and and so it was really hands-on, really practical, really outdoorsy, and I and I loved it, and and it was during that three-month period discussing this with my boss at the time that he was like well have you ever thought about doing a PhD and I was like well yeah if this is what I get to do then that sounds great so I applied for a scholarship and was fortunate enough to get it and set me on my career path wow yeah (laughs) that's interesting so you, you took this big risk of just showing up and just knocking on a person's door and hoping that it's going to work out yep pretty much um yeah i i did have one other option like i i did door knock a, a lot i was there for two months unemployed actually uh, but at the same time i was being interviewed through the hospital for a microbiology lab technician position as well and on the same day that i got the research assistant position um to be a marine scientist i also got the lab technician position and it was it's it's interesting whenever i think back into my past and be like oh how different my life could have been if i took the other option <laughs> right, right. Yeah. i know exactly what you mean there are, i think these moments in our lives where if, if you zigged instead of zagging your life would have been so different yeah i mean i have that i think four years ago i started brazilian jiu-jitsu and that changed my, the, the the trajectory of my life completely who I am now would have been so different had I not taken that step and it seems like th- that was one of the moments for you yep where had you not taken this uh, opportunity to to or rather had you taken the the um uh the, to work at that lab um doing micro stuff then you would have 
probably never been here. Yep, probably still working in the hospital system. <laughs> <laughs> probably depressed, <laughs> smelling. You know, like my, like I did a microbiology unit, and um, my so I work in 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 the field of biochemistry and molecular biology, and my supervisor's a. a, a like a hardcore biochemist and he doesn't understand micro and he goes I don't understand why people can work with micros you know when you're working with E. coli you know where they come from <laughs> that's where you gotta smell in the lab <laughs> like fair point fair point <laughs> yeah. oh, At least- I'm sure some of my microbiology friends would have something to say hey. about that <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's not that bad, man. <laughs> Making drugs with poo bacteria. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, but I didn't know what, um, the, how um, coral actually worked, how there was this sim- symbiotic relationship um, between these two different species. It was only uh, last week when I was talking to my friend about this interview. He's like, did you know this? I'm like, dude, that's so cool. Yep. So that's a. So obviously, yeah. So corals are in a symbiotic relationship with an algae called Symbodinium, and it's actually called an obligate symbiosis. And what that means is, actually, for corals to survive, they need to have this algae, and that's uh, the algae provides up to ninety-five percent of the carbon for corals. Um, so all this. And it does that through photosynthesis. Through photosynthesis, yeah, from the sun. And so all this, um, you've probably heard a lot in the news about these two mass bleaching events that have occurred on the Great Barrier Reef, um, one this year and one last year. And it's actually affected two-thirds of the Great Barrier Reef, which is a huge area. And and that's coral bleaching. And that's when the algae is actually expelled from the coral because it lives inside the coral. And it and so the symbiosis is broken down, and so a lot of the corals are actually dying because of this. So, so what causes that that breakdown of the symbiosis? Uh, there's there's many there's many there's many ideas out there of what what's causing it, um, but basically. We don't know whether the coral has decided that this symbiosis has become too stressful or whether the algae's decided just to get out of there because it's not working. But we, th- we think it's just um, uh, like the temperature has created more reactive oxygen species um, and so the relationship has just become quite toxic. But so, simplest uh, way. So, sure. So, the the temperature change in in the ocean has created this reactive oxygen. These are just oxygen. No, this is what happens during photosynthesis, oh. um, and so there's 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 more reactive oxygen species um, being created. Created. In the, yeah. In the process. Okay. So these algae use similar to what plants do with their leaves. They have photosynthesis. They produce sugars from sunlight and carbon dioxide and water. I believe. Yeah. I am um, a biochemist. If I get this wrong. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> but essentially, that process could also produce radical oxygen species, yeah. which are these oxygen molecule atoms, I should say, that are, aren't bound with another oxygen and they have a lone um, electron. Essentially, all it is is just like an oxygen molecule. Imagine your friend who's on meth. Like, it's just a meth version of your friend. So it's f- super unstable. It will stab uh, people around him um, and cause a lot of trauma and, 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 and chaos. So that's when you get a buildup of those uh, methed up oxygens, like, which you could use that analogy, then it starts to cause a lot of issues between the relationship yep. of those two species. Yeah. And so of those yeah two organisms, so the symbiosis breaks down. And that's why um, you see when you're talking about coral bleaching, it's because it's the corals actually look white. And it's actually because the algae's left their tissue. And so 
So the skeleton is just calcium carbonate, which is obviously quite white. Um, and the colour is, majority of the colour is of coral is from the algae, although other, obviously the coral brings some of the colour as well. But um, yeah. That's, so, that's, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's some of my research was actually looking at um, the early life stages of coral and this symbiotic relationship with the algae and actually looking more into how with climate change and with these increases in temperature, um, what happens with this association between the coral and the algae, but during the establishment of symbiosis, so during when they first take up this, this algae, um, is, is it going to change? Are they taking up? algae that are different because they're more heat tolerant and if this they are more heat tolerant what is this benefiting them at all or so that's what some of my phd work was actually on and and what were your findings um we found that um the coral larvae would actually establish symbiosis with more heat tolerant um, algae um, with increases in temperature uh and 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 then this symbiosis would develop more and i guess what we um, then hypothesise now is, okay, with increases in temperature, we'll probably see this shift in um, the corals associating with different uh, algae that are more heat tolerant. Um, And then now more work has to be done to look at, okay, what are the trade-offs for associating with this more heat tolerant algae? And so there's a lot of work being done on that or has been done on that to look at. The coral... Uh, are actually adapting to the heat and uh, uh, associating themselves with more uh, heat tolerant algae. Uh, yeah, you do see shifts in the in the environment. You do see corals um, changing with uh, which uh, which algae that they re- um, associate with. Um, but these permanent differences that um, I was talking about in in my PhD, this would have to be once the temperature is permanently staying at these highest temperature, higher temperatures. So right now we're seeing these mass bleaching events occurring um, because we're seeing increases in temperature for a period of time and then the temperature goes down a little bit, but it's always in the general trend is it's always rising. Right. And so over with incremental rises in sea surface temperature, we think that the association will slowly start to change to more heat tolerant partnerships um whether they can do it fast enough we remains to be seen and that is that appears to be the concern can they adapt before the temperature rises to such a degree that it's it's going to be impossible for them to um adapt that's yeah yeah okay um i think i had this misconception of what caused um coral bleaching and i suppose this is due to my ignorance and um, I thought there was the carbon dioxide level. Somehow it changed the acidity of the water and that affected... Uh, no, that is... Well, that's another thing that can cause bleaching. So the main driver of bleaching, especially the mass bleaching events we've seen all around the world, is always been temperature. Um, well, you, it's usually temperature, I should say. But there is also this concern, um, which is called ocean acidification. And that's like what you said with... Um, with more carbon dioxide in the air and being taken up into the water, that's actually decreasing the pH of the oceans. And obviously corals, um, they the skeleton that they make, it's made of calcium carbonate. And so a decline in pH would actually affect the, um, the, the deposition of the skeleton or more importantly, actually affect these reef, these reef systems that we see out in, in the environment. Um, a lot of the f- 
reef structure, the foundations are old corals that have died and then more corals grow on top and more corals grow on top. And where there's live coral tissue, um, the decrease in pH, it doesn't affect the live coral as much because they can regulate their pH. Whereas the foundations of the reef, it's just it's just calcium carbonate or and so the decrease in pH is actually making that dissolve. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's not so much the new but the old. Yeah, and so you can imagine if you don't have the foundations it will It'll start to collapse. Yeah. That is an issue. Okay. Um, I want to go back a bit to your journey because I think this is, I, I like to use these interviews as opportunities to not only learn about the person but also about their field. Um, yep. uh, but going back to your journey, and because I just finished my master's and I'm going into a PhD um, next year, um, so you knew you, you, you were going to do a PhD following your experience in your honors and the three month. Um, uh, research the, the job they have as a research assistant yeah like I, I wouldn't say I knew I need I was going to a PhD at the end of my honours um, I definitely tried to go well in my honours to keep that as an option open to do a PhD um, so I would be eligible for a scholarship um, but it wasn't until I did the three-month research assistant position that I was like oh yeah this is what I want to do so right yeah um, so in your PhD you, you we spoke about a bit about your research. Now, the next step, um, going from a PhD to a postdoc, I saw that you went to California. Yeah. Um, how did you decide to go there? Because that, that's what I'm most interested in right now. Doing a PhD, okay, fine, I kind of see that. In three years, I'll finish it. But then the next step is very enigmatic for me. I don't know what, what lies ahead. And I was hoping you could shed some light on what, what, how, like what were the factors that influenced you to go over there and how did you know to go over there and what was your experience like? Well, I guess like everyone, like when you're getting closer to the end of your PhD, you start thinking, oh, how do I make this next step? What do, what do I do next? And um, there's many different options open to you. You can follow the research path or you can look at going into industry or anything like that. And um, for me, I was, I was unsure what I wanted to do. And then this postdoc got advertised um, on a mailing list that I'm a part of. And it was working on corals and climate change and the early life stages of corals. And I, I just read it and was like, it, it, to me, it seemed like this job had been written for me. Like I didn't know these people at all, but I was like, this job is is perfect for me. And uh, and then hilariously, my supervisor saw it and forwarded it to me going, has this been written for you? <laughs> um, so I threw my hat in the ring and, and applied for that and, um, and got it. And so then... The, the next thing was, did, did I actually want to do this? Did I want to move to California? Did I want to leave Australia? And, 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 and I decided to, yeah. It was like, I was like, yeah, this would be a really good experience. We're always told um, going through our PhDs that it's really good to go and get experience in other labs and do research in other labs. Don't always, don't stay in the same university forever. Um, and I did really benefit from my experience in America. I learned a lot of things from um, going over there, just seeing how different lab operated um, and and just using different techniques and everything. So I, I guess I was very um, fortunate that a job came up right near the end of my PhD that meant that I um, – and that I got the job. And so that, that that's what happened with me. And so, yeah, then I just went overseas and it was a – uh, I ended up working there for two years. Two years. Yeah. Were you scared taking that leap? Um, no, I was excited. Um, I guess 
I think because I'd packed up my bags and driven up to Townsville with nothing lined up, I was like, yeah, I could do it again. Um, and it wasn't the same. Like, it's definitely when you pack up your bags and move somewhere and then end up doing a degree there, it's very easy to integrate into um, life there. Um, whereas moving to America, it was it, very different. They're, like, we think they're the same, but they're culturally quite different to us. Um, and also the job, I travelled a lot for the job. So I was in Taiwan and French Polynesia and literally like I started the job in America and one month later I'm running experiments in Taiwan in ocean acidification research that I'd never done before, new techniques. I had master's students with me that I was helping run their experiments and I, I think I'd only just managed to, f in that month that I'd been in America, just managed to find somewhere to live and get a social security number so I could get paid. And then it was like I was off. And then one month in Taiwan, back again to America for two months, then two months in Taiwan. And it, I did find it very hard to find my feet in America because I was traveling around so much. But I wouldn't change it for the world because I got so many amazing experiences overseas. So, yeah. yeah. I could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that is kind of my hope as well that I'm going to use my PhD and get into a position that I can travel the world with. Yeah. You know, or do it in your PhD as well. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I travelled a lot in my PhD what as did you well. Really? Yeah. Where did you go? Uh, Japan and Taiwan um, and America as well actually for uh, research, yeah. yeah. That's such a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of doing a collaboration between here and, and some university in China because I'm going there for about five months to study Chinese. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it would be good to just go there and talk to some academics and see what they're doing. But, yeah, that's one of my goals. And to see that you've you know, <laughs> utilized that strategy is, is, is fantastic. Yeah. So going from being doing your postdoc over there and learning as much as you could, why did you decide to come back? Did you always have a plan of, I'm going to come back home to Australia? Why not stay in America or other places? Um, I guess for me... Uh, well, I guess for me, coming back was I did always want to come back to Australia and, and do research in Australia. Um, the quality of life in Australia is, is very good and, and, and the research environment's really um, collaborative um, in, in some instances. Of, well, in majority of my experience being quite collaborative here. And, and I, so I did know that I wanted to come back and I actually did another one of those leap of faith things that I do, which was... I had one more year on my contract in America, but I was fairly certain I wanted to come back to Australia and I didn't want to, my boss to not have the opportunity to advertise a year postdoc in America. So um, I, I left um, with a year left so he could advertise a year position there and I moved back to Australia and fortunately got a job within four weeks of being back in Australia. So <laughs> it worked out well. Um, but yeah, I did know that I wanted to come back. The research environment here is great. Um, we're also paid well. So it's, it's really good, much much better than in America. Um, so, yeah, I did. And, and I worked I worked on corals, and I still work on corals, but I went back to the um, ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University, which is just a hub of activity um, with coral reef research. So it was really good to go back there. Okay. Yeah. And you, at the moment, you're doing a second postdoc, I believe, yes? Yeah, now I'm doing... I'm actually onto my third postdoc, and I'm um, working on oysters now, which um, was a, a, a shift in focus, but um, more similarities than differences. Um, it's 
they're like the reef systems of the temperate environment, uh, like corals are the reef systems of the tropical environment. So this job came up at Macquarie Uni, and I'm initially from Sydney, and I just read it and I was like, this is this is perfect for me. It's it's a really exciting position. Oysters are um, very similar to corals in in many ways. They um, build they build they have um, shells, but corals have skeleton. But that with that they actually build habitat for other organisms to live. Um, so they they've called reef building organisms, and um, they, the way they reproduce and everything is very similar to corals. It's broadcast spawning, and it, 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 there was just so many similarities. I could see myself definitely working on them, and it's been a really nice journey learning all about um, oysters and mm. all the interesting things about them because they're a very important um, food source in Australia. They, they, um, in New South Wales, they're the biggest um, primary industry that we have, and so it's, it's yeah, it's, right. it's good. Okay. Um, one question I, I think that comes to mind is uh, I've heard my supervisor say this and a couple of academics say this that when you're doing a postdoc um, you should always consider how much you're putting in in terms of giving them and also consider what you're going to learn from them is, is that a good way of approaching a postdoc? Definitely um, yeah I, I definitely think that and I think with each postdoc I've done that better and better like in my first postdoc because you're just out of your PhD you you just want to you just want to be a yes man. You just want to say yes to everything. You want to give as much as you can possibly give and um, and really impress them because you, you're you still really new in this field. And um, to the point where I don't know how much reflection I had during that period and it wasn't until I went into my next postdoc that I actually started, I guess, creating boundaries. It was like, yes, I will do this, but what are you going to... It's not what are you going to do for me, but it's like, let's work on this this way. I'm not just going to say yes and absolutely run myself ragged. I'm going to... Um, and so it was, it's, it's been a good process and now come the third one, I, I this is been a, a really enjoyable postdoc this one actually so you've mastered it yeah i feel like i've mastered it and i have amazing bosses in this postdoc which is great so nice nice yeah. okay that that gives me hope okay. <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to learn from, from, uh, from your experience okay yeah. that's really cool um so we've talked about your past your present let's talk a bit about your future um i'm curious what are your aspirations what do you want to accomplish with yourself it could be in any time scale, time frame, big, small, whatever you like. Uh, what do I want to accomplish? Well, I guess for work, um, the holy grail for for most postdocs um, is to get that uh, lectureship position, that permanent position. And um, there's obviously not very many of these, and especially if you are looking within just one area. So it's like there's not very many, especially in Sydney mm. at the moment and things like that. So I would love to... Um, get a lectureship position um mainly for for a number of reasons not just for the job security but also I love teaching and um I do get to do uh, a bit of teaching in my postdocs I get the opportunity to but to actually develop a course and um to be inspiring um the younger generation is is a really good really exciting prospect and so I would really love to um do that and 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 I guess also just teach them, like it, like teach them, teach them the science, but also just teach them that it's 
that there is many ways of doing things. There's many ways of approaching a problem. There's many ways of approaching almost life even. And it's, it's, there's not just one correct way. So, okay, yeah. that, That's cool. That's nice. Yeah. You, you mentioned... Um, so your next goal is obviously to get into a permanent position where you're lecturing. That the, I guess this is something that I've been considering and a lot of my friends who are doing PhDs and, and masters of, um, you know, having that job insecurity, I suppose. Is that stressful? Because, you know, you come out of a PhD and the PhD, you're kind of working for pennies, you know. Um, and then postdoc, it's considering that you've put about eight to nine years of your life, you know, it still doesn't pay very well um, relative to the end goal. Mm-hmm. Like, do you, like, is there a lot of, is there stress involved thinking about, is this ever going to work out? What if this never works out? Do you have those sort of thoughts? Uh, continuously. Um, there, maybe I stress more than others, but I think all of, the job insecurity is a, is a very uh, common conversation that all postdocs have with each other. Um, the stress of where, where what's going to happen next is 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 very stressful, and it and it it is also tricky because you're moving on in your life as well. So you're making decisions for your life, like buying a house or something, but you don't know whether your job's going to whether you're going to have a, a job come a year's time and things like that. So that that is a is a constant um, stress, and it's it's always nice you get you get into a postdoc. Just say it's three years long, and the first two years are usually pretty good and then the second that last year ticks on over you start looking desperately for another job and and you really do have to start looking about a year out um so that you find something that fits well for you and 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 it's always good obviously to um do a lot of extracurricular things so that people know you and people know the skills that you have um and but it, yeah, it's, it, it is a constant stress and it's not just mine. I have had discussions with a lot of postdocs about it. Um, it just comes with the territory. Just comes with the territory. But like in saying that, I feel like I've I've had a lot of discussions with people about this that don't work in science because I, I just assume it's all about the, our field that, that it's like this. But I'm, I'm hearing more and more that the world's going in this direction where there is less and less permanent positions and it's more and more contracts. And um, so no one's no one's got job security by the sounds of it. No one's safe. <laughs> so if I shifted out of uh, research and did did something else, it would probably be the same situation. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's a good point. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned extracurricular activities. To, obviously you want that to distinguish you from others yeah anything in particular that you, that i do yeah. um i'm doing a podcast right now no <laughs> doing a great job <laughs> um well i i try and always do um guest teaching or running labs where possible um i take on a lot of interns so i um, train a lot of interns that come from um, france and america and australia um there's always year 10 students coming through things like that but other things that I'm, I'm not as involved in at the moment but it's being on committees and um uh, within the university and and helping to run um things like that which i've peeled back on because i'm in the last year of my right. postdoc and this is where you really need to knuckle down and get those publications out so <laughs> right, right. look for the next job yeah <laughs> <laughs> abandon ship <laughs> okay that's cool so we, we talked about your aspirations do, do you have any fears besides the job insecurity but do you have any fears looking into the future it could be any as specific or as broad as you like 
how political can I get here? <laughs> as, as much as you like. Oh, uh, no. Um, uh, fears, the, I guess the biggest fear is for the world is climate change. Like, um, it, we all know it exists and it's when, and, and a lot of action is, people are trying to do a lot of action on this, but whether we can do enough or whether we've gone too far down the rabbit hole, um, I guess is one of one of the biggest fears. Uh, with the bleaching that's happened on the reef, um, experts are now coming out and saying, well, yes, the reef will never recover to how its former glory. And when, they, when I'm saying former glory, I mean from two years ago, but can we at least maintain the reef now? Can we actually, um, is there anything that we can do so that it doesn't get worse at such a fast rate um so yeah that's probably one of the biggest fears is is climate change climate change yeah mm-hmm. no, i totally get it i have a friend who's working at, i had um here's the first episode sandy and he's mm-hmm. working on building nano cages to eventually you know be able to trap carbon dioxide yeah and that's one of his fears is like how far do we have to go down the road before we decide to take action yeah and that, and that's the biggest thing it's like it, it I feel like has, to, I feel like a lot of the population has to be directly affecting them, and um, we can live in a bubble for very easily, and and potentially we have gone too far. We don't, we don't know. We won't know if we stop emitting carbon dioxide now. There's still this huge bounce back. It's going to keep going up for a while before it right, we start a, making a difference. There's so de- there's a lag. Yeah. Um, and we won't know what the outcomes are until the the consequences hit us okay my very last question and i promise i'll let you go (laughs) (laughs) because i know um, you have things to do um what would be some like looking at your journey and reflecting on it what would be some advice you could pass on to students who are considering following a similar journey even if it's not in marine biology but other fields of science if you could go back if you could provide some um advice what would it be um, definitely, if you want to do research, choose something that you enjoy working on because research, there is many amazing times, as many very enjoyable things, but then there's also a lot of sitting in front of the computer or crunching the data and things like that. So as long as you have a joy and an enjoyment for what you're working on, it makes it so much easier. Um, that's one, and, and follow your gut. I think one of the biggest things is just you know if something isn't working don't don't just just follow your gut and what you actually want to do um i guess that's what i did in in america when i had that postdoc it was i learned a lot it was very enjoyable and i knew i had one year left but i didn't know how much i was going to get out of that final year and i thought i could probably go elsewhere and learn a lot more um so yeah take chances follow your gut but um yeah do what you want to do love what you do Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Vivian. I appreciate it and I've enjoyed this conversation. Okay, thanks very much for having me. <laughs> what a fucking sick shot. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we should talk about that Lisa Faith thing. About her just just jumping maybe jumping and not worrying about the consequences and hoping that it'll, it'll work out that is actually that's pretty crazy that um i mean it takes a, a lot of courage to go into a situation not knowing 
what the outcomes are going to be and just saying, who cares? I'm just going to try to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Taking a, just a giant leap of faith, you know, take like, some guts. Yeah, Assassin's um, Creed style. Yeah, yeah. And you must be like pretty confident, I think, to be able to do that. So it's good. Yeah, and she did it. What she said, she did it after her honours. She decided to go up um, and work as a research assistant. But uh, that happened only by knocking on people's doors. And she said she actually knocked on quite a few people's doors. I should have maybe probed um, a bit more about that. But it's interesting how, like, she wanted something and she said, well, it's like those guys that moved to L.A. and want to make, you know, a... a you want to make it big, yeah. want to make, make a, it big. In a country overseas that's, yeah, really that's, different. That, that takes a lot of balls, man. It's not yeah. easy to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting that that seemed to have paid off for her, though. Everyone that she's taken, I think, was uh, uh, moving up north in um, Australia and then moving over into the US as mm. well, another big move. Uh, and then even coming back, I think it was probably, even though it was kind of coming back to home, was another, another big move where she just kind of took the opportunity when it presented itself and left. Yeah. And she said that, you know, because she did it the first time, she moved up to Queensland and did that. Was it Queensland? She I think it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like we could be wrong. Um, but she said that because she did that once, it was easier to do it again for yeah. her postdoc. Yeah, I guess you get some confidence from it paying off and yeah, it gives you that courage to try it again. Yeah, and you get comfortable with uncertainty. You realise that a lot of the, the fear and uncomfort that's involved is just in your own mind. Yeah. When you actually go through it, you're like, oh, it's just cool. It's not, it's not like as difficult as I thought it would be. Yeah, exactly. That's excellent. Um, a, another thing I thought, which was really interesting and resonated with me a bit, was uh, when she she talked about her childhood interest in science and where it came from with her parents and things like that. So my parents actually weren't science; they were like teachers, like yours, um, but not scientists. And so were they science teachers? No, no, not science teachers either. What did no, they do? Both primary school teachers. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So my mum actually taught high school as well for a little bit, English and history, I believe. But yeah. She went back to primary school? Yep, went back to yeah, primary. I don't blame her. Yeah. I gotta, she's got to put up with people like, like my nephew over here. Yeah. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> my nephew yeah, sitting over tough. here and giving us dirty. He's like, man, I'm awesome. What are you on about? <laughs> He's 15. <laughs> yeah. Kids at that age can be really tough to work with. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I reckon really young kids are sometimes really tough to work with too. Mm. Uh, like, I don't know how people put up with a classroom of kindy kids, to be honest. Yeah, that's tough. I have a niece, two, ne two nieces and a nephew around like from five to about seven or eight. I love playing with them. I love, like, my 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 niece, she had some issues with, like, math. She wasn't getting it. Yeah. And then I sat down with her, like, an hour. And I think <clears throat> at any level that you're at, so whether it's yeah, primary school or high school or university, when you see students wanting to learn, that's when it becomes fun for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. You know? So that's the most rewarding thing. Huh? Yeah, yeah, dude. And it's so, it was so nice just sitting with her and trying to do additions and trying to use big numbers, you know, like adding up 70 and 80 and she's trying to calculate how to do it. And then she, because she was so interested in learning it, it was just so fun. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, but I could just imagine like how hard it would be to teach teenagers who don't want to learn it's different yeah and it's different when there's a whole class i'd imagine as well oh, dude. you know 
yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And everyone's like, I remember how much of a smart asshole I was back then. <laughs> Yeah, they've got too many uh, other interests going on. Oh, dude, yeah. it was just so crazy. And me being the class clown as well, like, oh, dude, it was terrible. I feel sorry for all my <laughs> teachers, you know. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, and I remember back to Vivian. I was, I remember she was talking about how when they would go on holidays, her, her dad and mum would just see something interesting on the side of the road, and pull over and like have to look at it immediately and like suss it out, and. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I find, like I'm like when I just walk around and like look at stuff now. Sometimes I walk past something like just a spider, you know, built in a web or something. But I feel like I just have to like stare at it and watch it, and or I like catch myself just walking out. And if it's a really clear night and there's heaps of stars out, just like stopping, kind of looking at them for ages oh, and yeah. um, and trying to see if I can spot some planets and stuff. And I think that's something that I only got a real great appreciation of the more I got into science, like. You know, you look at you look at a spider's web and you think, oh, that's pretty, or you look at a rose and you think that's pretty, or the stars and stuff. But when you understand kind of more about it, it gives you a greater appreciation of it. Mm. It kind of increases it. So I think that was uh, came through in what Vivian was saying too with her parents. It's mm. probably why she was inspired to go into science. Right. It's. Um, you just mentioned something. Go back like. 20, 30 seconds ago. About how... It, oh, no, no, it was about... Uh, sorry. It was about appreciating. So yeah, so science, like, when you understand how something works, it gives you a better appreciation of it. So, it, like, in, like, it enriches your understanding. Yeah, like um, in music, if you're... Cause Alex is a musician and he teaches uh, music as well. And so, for him, when he listens to Beethoven or whatever, I bet you appreciate it at a deeper level than I could appreciate it. Someone who hasn't had any musical training. Yeah. It's like when people watch, like... Uh, in Australia, there's um, NRL, which is rugby, and I, I don't watch rugby at all. The only sport yeah, that I do either, watch yeah. is mixed martial arts. But yeah. I have friends who are in... The same thing, though, with mix, mixed martial arts. Yeah. Like, you, you have a better appreciation of it For than sure. someone who doesn't understand exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, like, with martial arts and rugby, is that, you know, people who have trained and are skilled in that craft or art or sport... They see everything that other people don't see. They see the setups. They see the techniques. They see, like the like the difficulty that's involved in the execution, yeah. the beauty of the execution of a certain technique. Um, but that only comes by becoming learned in that in that field, in that specific um, sport or art or whatever. But when you become a scientist, the beauty, the beautiful thing is you appreciate everything yeah exactly because you can look at a star and recognize oh that star may be billions of years light years away yeah and yeah. that light is billions of uh, of years old and it's just reaching me now yeah. you look at the sun you're like damn that's a fusion fusion reactor you know something that we can't even create over here you look at the flower and you recognize oh there's the fibonacci sequence in that you yeah. know you look at the tree you know exactly how it's drawing nutrients from the ground and using the sunlight you know to to drive for the synthesis to create energy so everywhere you look it's like there's a masterpiece around you and so you appreciate it much you appreciate i think the universe and the world at a deeper level than people who don't see all the intricacies and all the details behind what we see yeah yeah you appreciate it to a greater deal i guess that's also why i never understand i hear sometimes i don't know if you hear it too but people saying oh when you find out how something works it like works it kind of like just kills the beauty of it but i don't like you know how somehow as if scientific understanding kind of kills the beauty that you see 
Okay. In nature, but I, I don't get that. But who are you hanging out with? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just, just things I hear online. I think there's yeah. this idea that art and beauty are kind of in conflict a little bit with, with science to some degree, and I don't get it mm. because uh, I, I just see one as enriching the other and yeah. vice versa. And I think science is, it's it's, uh, it's a little different from art in that it's. It's pure creation and imagination. Yeah, surely. Yeah, they're very different. Yeah, right? yeah. It's art, there's, and there is rigor involved in science, but yeah. in art, like my nephew, like we were doing some, so he's, he's just starting to learn the guitar. So we were just going through some like A minor chords and E chords and just yeah. strumming through that. There's a lot of rigor to teach your fingers to move from one place to another. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of repetition that's involved. Whereas in science, man, you could be thinking about something and you come up with an idea. You're like, man, let's figure out a great way to test that idea. Yeah. And that's where the creativity lies. Yeah, yeah. And you know, when people say, oh, science isn't creative, I completely it's very disagree creative with that. It's imagine, very much yeah. creative. The fact that we have all this technology and the progression that we've seen in the world is because of creative people who have come up with, you know, ingenious ways of testing and creating yeah. stuff. So, Yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think they're very similar, art and science, in that respect. And they probably differ, whereas art's like an expression of what we feel and how we see the world. And science is kind of an uh, attempt to understand the world and yeah. our, the quest for knowledge. But besides that, I think they're, they're very similar in lots of ways. Very much so. I mean, you can't have, this is the thing, you can't have art without science. Yeah. So music only sounds good because of the mathematics behind it. Somehow yeah. we've been fine-tuned to appreciate music. There's evolutionary you know, reasons behind it. But there's, there's, a, there's, there's a science behind music, there's a science be behind art, there's mathematical reasons why we find certain things appealing and other things appealing. There's a reason why a, a piece of music sounds beautiful. Even the human body itself, looking at a face, that's art. Yeah. But there's science behind that. There's a Fibonacci sequence running across your face. Yeah. So that's why when you get like uh, plastic surgery on your face, it mucks everything up because you throw off that sequence. So uh, there's actually... A, a great YouTube video I was watching the other day, like 10 celebrities that went from instant famous to instant like <laughs> nothing. And there was one celebrity, dude, I kid you not, there was this one celebrity who was like, who made this really good movie. And then for some reason, she thought she needed to get plastic surgery. So she fixed up her nose, but the, the, the nose wasn't bad before that, man. But what she did was the plastic surgery completely changed the face uh. so that she had this hit movie Right, and then straight after, no one could recognize her. Yeah, yeah, jeez. <laughs> but don't, you know, that's, don't mess with your face because <laughs> there's a science behind it. You know, the fact that we find people beautiful, I think there may be math, something mathematical about that. You know, the fact that we we recognize symmetry as something uh, as as being attractive. You know, yeah. Isn't there some study where? Yeah, we've looked at that. We should maybe try and link some in the description for this episode, try and find some. But I think there were some some things where even there might have been some psychological things where they they measured faces and try and find the most beautiful face in, mm. in a scare quotes um, that humans would have. And they kind of use all those types of features, like mathematical features, mm -hmm. by collating lots of different faces that we find beautiful. And yeah, yeah, yeah well, it's interesting. Symmetry is, is beautiful yeah. for some reason. Like we're attracted to that. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing ever. Um, I found it really interesting getting back to Vivian. Uh, 
how, why she didn't get into biochemistry because both you and I are, I, I guess, <laughs> part biochemists. Dude, I took that on the chin. Yeah, yeah. She's like, it's it just felt, felt like regurgitation. I'm like, oh, man. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I'll take that. Thanks, Vivian. <laughs> I, I, I understand her point. I could, I could see why, um, why she would think it was boring because... It is, it is a little bit of like just looking at cycles after cycles. But the reason I liked it is because um, I kind of like thinking about what life is and why things are alive. And cool. biochemistry is a big part of that. And those cycles are, you know, yeah. are a big part of what it actually means to be alive. So that's why I like it. But, yeah. but I do see a point. Yeah. I think she's right in terms of how it's taught is about regurgitation. Yeah. Even at university, I felt like... Um, it, th th that's the issue with science, man. When you're doing undergrad, there is just so much to learn. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, um, that it, it, you have to kind of teach these cycles for people to understand what's coming after them, you know? Like, if you don't understand all the biochemical pathways that are involved in how we harvest our energy, then you can't understand, for example, how metabolism yeah. works. So what if I go on a fasting diet or what if I go on this? If, if if somebody comes with a diet in their mind, I know based on the biochemical pathways what may happen. Yeah, you know? exactly. So you're able to apply that knowledge. But until you get to that point, it it is all memorizing and, like we're, and like we're talking about before as well. Um, when you understand these biochemical processes, that enriches your understanding of what it means to be alive and your yeah. understanding of what living things are. So yeah. it kind of adds to the appreciation that you have. Yeah. So that's just uh, us trying to defend that field. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now that's out <laughs> of the way. Say, yeah. No. Thanks a lot, Vivian. <laughs> no, I, think, I think she has a point. And yeah. uh, for her, it was... She was more interested in in corals, and you know everybody has a certain path that they follow, yeah. certain interests, things that interest her may not interest us. Although she gets the last laugh because she's out in, in uh, northern Queensland and uh, the US uh, on beaches collecting coral, and we're stuck right. in a lab looking at test tubes. So she gets the last laugh. No, there, you I know, think. you know, we get the last laugh as well uh, at the microbiologists who have to deal with shit bacteria. Yeah, that's life. true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, guys. <laughs> you know, I think we could all hold hands and just bag out microbiology. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I, I had some notes down here about about her, how her research, because I found that really interesting. I don't know how much you want to go into that, because you guys talked about it a lot in the interview, but I thought it was pretty interesting stuff. Um, about how they're finding that coral may be associating with different types of algae that are, are more heat tolerant uh, due to global warming. That's very interesting, I think. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting in that, first of all, I didn't know that the temperature of, of the ocean was what was driving these. Um, so it, as, she, as Vivian described, you know, you have this coral, which is like soft tissue that are like part that they are growing... Um, in this skeleton structure, which is made out of calcium carbonate, I believe she yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have these bacteria that go inside the corals in the soft tissue and then almost hang out uh, underneath their skin. And, yeah. that's, and that's what captures the light from the sun and turns that into energy for the coral. And yeah. so there's a symbiotic relationship. Um, and interestingly enough, so that's why uh, corals are, you know, in places where there's a lot of sunlight, so mm. shallow water, um, uh, otherwise they won't survive because they need that symbiotic relationship. Um, what did she say? 
I forgot my my point. But uh, uh, the point was this: that I I had no idea that the temperature itself was was the cause for this breakdown of the symbiotic relationship. Yeah, exactly. I thought the carbon dioxide. I thought this yeah. is. This I thought yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned the acidity. The carbon dioxide uh, goes into the water and it makes it more acidic, and it's it's, it's essentially carbonic acid, which is the same stuff that's in your soft drink. Yep. Yeah, you pump soft drinks full of. Uh, uh, carbon CO2 to make them fizzy and uh, they get more acidic. Well, it's the same thing um, if you pump CO2 into the atmosphere, it increases the amount of carbon in the water and it makes it more acidic. Um, Does it? I, and I always... Pumping more... Yeah, if you so if you if oh you okay sorry sorry I, so it makes I thought pumping more out of I don't know I got confused but I just keep going <laughs> I, I, I kind of yeah yeah so but I because of that because of that acidity that's why like you mentioned that's why I thought a lot of this coral bleaching was occurring you know you just yeah. you put that that uh, together in your head but uh, she said yeah a lot of it like you mentioned is due to the temperature rises of the water and these temperature fluctuations if it gets out of the temperature the coral gets rid of all of these algae these symbiotic algae mm. and then sometimes they don't take them back in and if they don't take them back in then they get the energy and they just die mm. well, is it the coral that kicks them out or the algae just decide to leave uh, it could be the algae just decides to leave yeah mm. it's like a relationship oh uh, you know wasn't it the coral because course. you were talking about the uh, oxygen meth heads right, oh, oh, yeah radical yeah, oxygen yeah that's right no I'm not sure man it's like one of those uh, situations you know, yeah bro I broke up with her first man I dumped her and she tells her friends no man he was an, he was an asshole I break up with him first <laughs> everyone's got a safe face hey. who is it the algae or the coral <laughs> He's got yeah um yeah it, it it was the global temperatures I, I didn't sus- I didn't expect that to be one of the causes, but uh, carbon dioxide levels definitely. She mentioned that carbon dioxide actually degrades the foundation that these corals are. So these you'll have coral that are growing these skeleton structures, and then they die, and then other coral build on those skeleton s- structures. Yeah. A bit like Futurama. Do you remember Futurama when when there was old New York City was underground and new yeah, New York City yeah. was above ground. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like that. Yeah. So if you imagine if you knock down old New York City, then the new New York City wouldn't survive. And that's what's happening with the carbon dioxide levels. Yeah. Um, but interesting, it, while you know global warming is definitely a, a, an issue and this, you know, we need to try to mitigate the effects of it, it's interesting how adaptive life is on earth yeah that already um she said that these corals are associating with more heat tolerant yeah um bacteria but she she said that you know the temperatures are fluctuating and they don't know whether this association is going to be there at a at a a higher permanent temperature but i thought wow like it just shows how amazing life is and its ability to adapt to the environment. Whether these coral and the bacteria are actually going to be able to survive, you know, the cl- the, the temperature rises that we, that I expected yeah. to see. And the other thing is, they may only survive in the meantime too. It could get so so bad that they end up just dying as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And those, have you seen the pictures of the bleached corals? Yeah, dude, that's sad. Yeah, yeah, it's no good. Sad, yeah, and um further on that as well like if the i think she did mention on us ocean acidification if that's breaking down this calcium carbonate that's like a positive feedback loop then because this calcium carbonate that's storing effectively a carbon store so yes making it more acidic 
breaks down the calcium carbonate and we're releasing that carbon store and putting more. That's so true because coral do uh, mm. indeed, in fact, they, they, they trap carbon for us. Yeah. And if, if the carbon is being dissolved and uh oh. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, so like anyway. with that issue then of ocean acidification um, and global warming and things like this, how, I guess, how do you get people, how do you get the public motivated to change it? Because I think Vivian was saying something that she believes, and I, I agree with her, I think that people have this distance from it. They're not really connected to it uh, because it doesn't directly affect them, so they don't see it as a big problem. Mm-hmm. So I get, like, it reminded me there's that... Um, there's that ethical problem by Peter Singer. Can't remember if I've told. I think I have told it to you before. I'll do it again now. So, Peter Singer, who's a famous Australian bioethicist, he um, has poses a philosophical ethical problem, which is, you're walking home from the shop and you've just bought a nice new pair of jeans, and you're walking past a lake and you look over and you see a boy drowning in the lake. Now here's the dilemma that you have to consider. Do you jump in and save the boy drowning in the lake, thus ruining the new jeans you just bought? Or do you go home and keep your new jeans nice and fresh and clean and leave the boy to drown? Before anyone thinks that uh, Alex is just crazy for asking that question and thinking, man, how heartless could you be even to consider that? Explain why it's a legit question. Well, uh, Peter Singh opposed it because, you know, jeans may, maybe cost, say, 70 80 maybe $100. Yeah. Well, I buy jeans at $1,000. So most of the time when, <laughs> people are, <laughs> when people are confronted, you're just a superstar of fashion. Yeah, but when people are confronted <laughs> with, this, um, with this ethical dilemma, they go, well, of course I'm going to jump in and save the kid. What's $100? What's a $100 pair of jeans to me? I jump in and I save this boy's life because the problem's right there in front of him and they can see it. But Singer makes the point that right now, there are people dying of starvation in Africa, and if you literally didn't buy a new pair of jeans, you could send that money and quite possibly save someone's life. So the problem is actually right in front of you, but it's just separated by distance, and that's why a lot of people just buy the new jeans. And so how is that related to global warming? Well, this is, I guess, the problem that Vivian was bringing up, that people just kind of even though global warming is a really big problem and it's happening now people just kind of put it aside and they don't think about it and go on with their lives because it's not right in front of them directly affecting them so they don't see it i see so it's the same problem as uh, that singer is getting at where people just ignore the starving child in africa because it's not right in front of them right. even though they would jump in and ruin their new genes to save that boy drowning immediately without any question yeah, that, that, I think, that, yeah, that's a good comparison. You know, but it's interesting that when you see a drowning kid, you, uh, it's like you can't walk away with it. You can't walk away yeah, from no it. no one could walk away. You know, you have the responsibility to save that kid. Exactly. But if you don't, you're culpable now yeah. for not saving that kid. But right? are we not culpable for buying a new pair of jeans and helping a starving kid in Africa? Yeah, but so, and then, the, as you said, you know, with global warming and with starvation, with any issue, if, it's, if you're not looking at it directly, then it's very easy to pretend like you don't have a moral responsibility yeah. to do something about it. Yeah. Um, and same with global warming. I mean, we spoke about this, uh, I think with Vivian, I spoke to her, and she said that, you know, in Australia, we, we, there's not really, we may not feel the pressure to go and 
change our policies, change yeah. our approach. Whereas, like these are small island countries who yeah. are literally losing land because the, the exactly. sea levels are rising, yeah. they have a completely different opinion on <laughs> if global yeah. warming is real or not. You know, yeah. so it, it's again, it's when it's in your face, you you have to deal with it, and you feel ob obligated to deal with it. But when it's not, mm. then it's like this cognitive dis dissonance. If I'm not sure if that's the right way to yeah. say it, but you disconnect essentially. You're like, no, I'm not responsible. I can't see it. So it's uh, what I have to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult problem. Like, how do you communicate that to people? And I guess that's what the benefit of talking about it more is and scientists being more vocal about it. We waterboard people. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's going to feel if the water levels rise. Did Trump come up with that policy? I don't know. <laughs> hey, maybe. <laughs> the, new, the new head of EPA. <laughs> the guy who works like for some oil companies or whatever, he's like anti-climate change or whatever, he's going to come and tell us. <laughs> All these green... I don't know, man. Anyway, let's get on to something more positive. Yeah. Um, she, Vivian mentioned that she really wanted to be an academic, which is something that I've found interesting as well because she loves teaching. I think she mentioned that. She really mm -hmm. loves teaching, and that's why she wanted to be an academic because mm -hmm. she can incorporate teaching as part of her research. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just wondered how, how much that is to do with her being a scientist as well because I find, I don't know, for me anyway, that being a scientist, um, I, I come, I come kind of into science and research because I like learning about stuff. And I think when you're into learning about things, you want to teach as well because you want other people to be interested in learning about stuff. So I wonder if that's the same for her. That, yeah, for me, I, that's the case for me. Yeah. But you, I have, yeah, I think it may be the same for her. We, we don't know, I should have asked her that. But she did seem passionate about teaching. Actually, before the conversation, her and I, before the interview, her and I were just talking and uh, talking about teaching and marking. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, uh, you know, I love everything about teaching. The only thing I, I don't like is the marking aspect of it. And she's like, yeah, me too. I've been lucky as a postdoc. I get to do all the all the fun stuff of teaching, which is guest lecturing and talking. Oh, that's and then good. when it comes to the marking, you know, all the academics like the, the you know, <laughs> they take care of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you, you're in a sweet spot. Yeah, so it sounds like something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. And she mentioned as well. Um, about the constant stress of looking for jobs, which is which is another thing that kind of sucks about that academic career path is like mm. never having a permanent position or not for a long time or struggling to get a permanent position and having to deal with casual casual positions. Yeah, I actually, you know, listening to her kind of placated some of that some of that stress because she said usually a postdoc goes for about three years. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about the next job until the third year. So, you know, I mean, for two years, you're kind of stress-free. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, and then it's just the last year where you have to panic. I think the good thing about that is that it lets you move around, which is actually something you mentioned earlier on, I think, in the episode, where um, moving around to different labs helps you diversify your skill. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. And you get to see the world, you get to have fun. But in the meantime, if you have a family or a girlfriend or a wife, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're willing to bring them, you know, everywhere you go. But, you know, I could see how it could be difficult for someone who's trying to establish a family, you know, um, and trying to be a postdoc at the same time and knowing that, oh, this is my last year of this postdoc. I have to find another job. Uh, uh, hopefully, yeah. And she mentioned, actually, you know, buying a house is an issue, for yeah. example. If, if you're – and <clears throat> the, the trick is, you know, when you're an undergrad um, – 
obviously you don't get paid a postgrad uh, phd um you get some scholarship money if you're doing it right you know if you're if you're if you're doing research right and you're excelling but uh, you know when you reach a phd typically i mean i'm about 27 now uh the next stage is a postdoc but a couple of postdocs in you reach the age where you want to settle down and have a family and buy a house um and you don't get that opportunity because of the in insecurity of, of the job. I mean, you can't double down and say, yeah, I wanna buy a $400,000, $500,000 house if you're making 80 grand a year for like two years for sure. And then the third year, like, ah, yeah, I gotta find another place. And so it's definitely, I think that this type of job is suitable for people who don't wanna anchor down just yet. You know, uh, it's for me specifically, I think for me, it's perfect. Yeah, I don't want to be in the same place twice. I want to go to a couple of different, like a few different places, see the world, um, and get paid, even though the pay is like pennies. Research, I think, is a good career path for that anyway, as well. You know, mm. yeah. yeah, academia is definitely hard. Yeah, to it's get a hard into. road. Yeah. yeah, that's why. Yeah, but like we saw with like we saw with Brittany last week, that that's just one career path available from yeah. research anyway, because she was trying to use her research to career to maybe go into like something like detective or with the police force. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the pathway to becoming academic may be much more competitive and difficult to get into now. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that's the only pathway that's or the only thing that's available. Exactly. There's a lot out, outside, you know. And it's not a job that everyone would probably want anyway. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's probably good that not everyone wants it yeah you know it's probably some anti-social scientists you can't deal with talking to people all they want to do is just be in the lab and do the experiments and contribute that way you yeah. don't want to force those people to start talking to students and losing their shit <laughs> Thanks for listening to Blabcoats. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabcoats at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.